Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. What is up, my fellow Alex Ralph Sutton, the SDR Show, a goddamn production producer, musician, legend, Nile Rogers, who has a career spanning five decades, just an incredible guy to talk to. We do the show every single Wednesday, every Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern time at gasdigitalnetwork.com slash live. If you're a fan of Nile Rogers, you could have heard this five days ago, commercial free in HD at gasdigitalnetwork.com, or just continue listening where you are. That's all we really care about. Spread the word, spread the love. If you want to subscribe, use the code SDR, get 20% off, seven-day free trial, all at gasdigitalnetwork.com. But really, we're just happy you're a part of it. Here it is right now, the Nile Rogers episode of The SDR Show. This is the intro to the shit show. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is the hit show. Show me a tit show. Please, someone fuck the whole. It's weed, I feed, it's hookers and blow. It's art, it's art, you need to know. The SDR Show. Let's go. It is the SDR Show, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Show. I am Ralph Sutton. With me, and quite often these days, especially on the Zooms, is James Mattern. I will say this before I fully introduce our guest. It is the first time in months, if not a year, where James is nervous. I'm really nervous. I really This is unbelievable. Can I say this? So when this got booked yesterday, Shannon goes, the producer, Mr. Mr. Rogers, um, uh, can you uh, can you do tomorrow at 1230? She usually just says that and then tells me the guest later. She goes right from the jump. Um, Ralph, I'm just going to spoil the name. Hey, now fine. Rogers. And my reply was, fuck, yeah, eight exclamation points. She goes, I guess that's a yes. I go, yes, it is. And I don't like the, to fan out on these. And I don't want to be like the guy who wears the band shirt to the show. But I couldn't resist. I have a like a virgin shirt. And to me, the production on this is the great material girl's the greatest production ever all right i have to shut up and I'm not ruin the, the show. proper introduction this, this is unbelievable he this is unbelievable writing, but i'm going to give the right the right introduction okay a musician producer composer uh performed on records that have sold over 500 million copies worldwide he's in the rock and roll hall of fame the songwriters hall of fame multiple grammys he also oversees the abbey road studios he created the we are family foundation uh the hypnosis song fund and then more the best quote i've ever saw about him was in rolling stone that said the full scope of his career is hard to fathom influential for six decades it is nile rogers how are you sir thank you man i'm i'm really great really great today uh i so we're gonna start with something so you don't know this show why would you right but very often, I have two co-hosts that I, I work with on the show. The other one is a comedian named Big J Okerson. This is James Mattern. Very often, I'll tell stories on the show, and they don't believe me. And I try to get to the person so that we could either make fun of me because you don't remember, or at least I can say it to you, and we'll take it from there. Then we'll go into the interview. I just have to get this off the top of the show because if I bring up other stuff, my co-host Jay will say, oh, you just buttered him up. And that's why he says, yes, he remembers you. So I'm going to tell you this story first, and then we'll get into the interview. All right. 
Okay. You got to go back 30 fucking years. That's problem number one. Okay. You okay. are working with David Lee Roth. Oh, shit. You are uh, was right before that, uh, that uh, Dirty Little Mouth uh, album comes out, right? Right. I was a filthy mouth. Sorry. You, I was a no, dirty, dirty, You got it right. Dirty Little Mouth. Dirty Little Mouth. I was a uh, DJ at a strip club in New York City, right? And you used to come in with him all the time. You would call me the long-haired Fabio, and I'm going to share a screen. <laughs> Here's it is right now. Let's see here. This is me from back then. Wow. Okay. And you and him would come in all the time. Can you see that? Is that being shown? I see. It? It's shown. Okay, it's shown, Bubba's. Don't worry about that, baby. Okay. So <laughs> I don't. It was the show. The club was called Pure Gold. You and David Lee Roth at least five times came in during that production. I had crazy long hair. You were the one who called me dark-haired Fabio. Do you remember that at all, or am I lying, or I, I somewhere in the middle? I, I don't remember the actual calling you long-haired Fabio, but I see the picture and I can say, well, you got it right. And it would certainly be something that you would remember, um, but I, I I couldn't deny it. I would So I would have to say that you are absolutely right. Because here's the deal. Before I met Dave, um, I never went to a strip club. Right. Oh, okay. I, even though I had girlfriends who worked in strip clubs, like they that was their job, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I had never gone. Um, maybe I'd gone to one or two, but I it, I wasn't like that wasn't my thing. Mm -hmm. So when I when I met Dave, what what he said to me was, "Nah, buddy." Uh, what? what and I, actually, I'm not going to say what he said. But anyway, <laughs> oh, he he he. he um, this was like we'd go to strip clubs like every night with Dave. And no matter what city we were in, he knew the, the guys. Uh, matter of fact, we did a record down in Atlanta, which is famous for strip clubs, which I didn't know at the time. And we spent so much money. They closed the joint. They kicked all the other dudes out. And it was just me, Dave. And oh, I can't remember who it was. It was a country artist. It was just the three of us with like, 200 girls. <laughs> wow. And we spent enough money to make everybody make have a good time that night. Oh, that's right. Then also, by the way, a couple of other quick points, and then we'll get into everything. Um, I believe she was your assistant for years that I was close to a woman by the name of Jordan Tyson. Do you remember her? Sure, Jordan. That's Oh, man, I love Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long time ago. And then lastly, because my mother would kill me if I didn't bring this up, um, she is very good friends with Alpha Anderson, the the, the original singer of Chic, and yeah. um, her former boss was a guy named Marla who ran a um, a um, roller skating rink called Metropolis back in the day that I think you used to go to. And my mom said, "Please ask her." She heard that you might be working on some sort of roller skating project. Is that true? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, for the last two years. So in New oh, and York, Becky James too. She knows Becky James. Oh, too. Sorry. Becca, that's my girl. I uh -huh. Becca's doing a movie now about roller skating that I'm in because um, oh. I'm, I'm 70 years old. And I still love the roller skate. So yeah, um, uh, Metropolis, absolutely. Uh, I used to go there all the time. The um, the guy who was the owner, Marlo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we. Yeah. So everything your mom's saying is spot on the money. I uh, get And you're I doing something. Are you doing something with roller skating now? You are? Yeah. I uh so I'm the um 
the the co-owner of um, uh, a project called Discoasis. So we were in LA two years ago, incredibly popular and did really well. We brought it to Central Park last year. Um, and we did well in Central Park, but we only did well at night because, man, new, last summer in New York was absurdly hot um, mm-hmm. in the afternoons and the daytimes. So now uh, we're moving to Miami, um, and uh, people people love it. It's oh, that's going to make my mom very happy because she lives in Miami. So oh, oh great. Uh, well, I'm I live in Miami too. So um, yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's, it's going to be. It, we have great skaters here in Miami, so it's going to be hot, hot, hot. What's fascinating to me, I've always known. Look, who doesn't know the name Nile Rodgers, right? I mean, you are like that Rolling Stone quote, so influential for so many decades to the point where I don't know how many Grammys you have, but you were just nominated for Beyonce's uh, album, which is like a couple weeks ago, all the way back to the seventies, every decade you're doing things that matter. Like when you look at the fact that you worked with, you know, yes, we know uh, Sheik, obviously Diana Ross, Luther Vandross, David Bowie, Madonna, Duran Duran, but all the way up to Mark Ronson, Adam Lambert, Sam Smith. It's crazy that you're still as influential today and this was my question was that when you think of producers, the ones that jump out, like obviously you, but then you say, oh, Quincy Jones, Rick Rubin, there are certain people that jump out as prolific right. producers. And I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you do. You're the only one I know of that's actually in there coming up with riffs. You came up with that Let's Dance riff for David Bowie. Yeah. You know, other producers like Rick Rubin openly doesn't play instruments, you know. I don't know any other producers that are in the weeds with the musicians as well. Am I right with that? It's it's funny you say that because I'm working with uh, a few artists now. Uh, I'm working with Coldplay. Uh, I'm working with artists that actually have guitar players in the band. Mm-hmm. And and I'm working with a, a band that's really cool. And they have two guitar players. And I, you know, I, I'm be, just being straight up with you guys. Um, 99% of the albums and songs that I produce, I play guitar on. And mm-hmm. I always tell the artist that if I can't contribute um, musically to the production, you should choose a, produ- a different producer because that's that's what I do is I write songs, I write riffs, I play licks. Uh, I try and come up with things that are sort of um, unforgettable and it, and and, and what I mean by that, and this is seriously no ego at all. It's only it was a survival tool. Um, when when I met Bowie, and uh, and he told me uh, basically I was charged with writing a, or producing a hit album, and he came in with the songs that he wanted me to do, and he believed they were hits. I was like, wow, <laughs> okay, uh, maybe in a different universe they're hits, but right now, <laughs> and, no, and, and no disrespect. I'm just saying, right. Bowie is a very artistic. He's a very artistic dude. So he he didn't look at the world the way we looked at the world. He looked at it, man, through Bowie lenses, and they were serious artistic lenses, and. What was great about working with David is that he understood where I was coming from the very first time I did demos with him. We went to 
uh, the band Queen. They they had a studio in Switzerland, the same town that David lived in, and um, and uh, he he had walked into my bedroom and he played Let's Dance, and or a song called Let's Dance, and it was a folk song. At least to me, it was a folk song. And then, and I have nothing against folk songs, but he had charged me with doing a hit album. He didn't right. say a hit single. He said a hit album. Like all the songs had to be, you know, catchy. Bangers. Yeah. I'm, okay. Straight up. Straight up. Yeah. So, Bangers, baby. So he walked into my room. He played something that sounded like a folk song. And I honestly thought that he was trying to test me to see if I was a sycophant. And I would go, oh, Mr. Bowie, that's so cool, man. That's a really great song. And I was like going, holy shit. I called all of his friends that I knew. And I said, man, David came into my room and said he thinks this is a hit. And he played something for me. And I said, I can't say to David Bowie, no, it's not a hit. Or at least Mm -hmm. not a hit to my ears. And I said, do you think he's trying to play a trick on me? And every last one of his friends said, no, Niall, he's not that kind of guy. He would never do that. He doesn't, he, he, if he said he thinks it's a hit, it's a hit. And I went, oh shit, what do I do? (laughs) But what people don't know is that the first night he and I met, we got into this lengthy conversation about jazz and David was a jazz aficionado, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Me and Billy Idol, we walked into this club, and when Billy Billy used to be my hanging boy, we used to go out like damn near every night together. So we walked into this club. <laughs> Billy was drunk as shit, and he he saw David, and both of us, we saw him at the same time. He was sitting all by himself in the back of the room, and Billy went, bloody hell, that's David fucking Bowie. And when he said Bowie, which is how they, the English said it, um, he barfed and he went, ah, oh my God. And then he, and he did this move. I love him. I mean, so Billy went, hello, Mike. Oh, God. And I was like, going, but at that point, what had happened is that I had already gone to David because I didn't barf and I didn't stump. Thank God. So, um, so <laughs> he and I were already engrossed in this heavy jazz conversation. Anyway, so. What I did was after he played um, this riff, this song called Let's Dance, um, I said, uh, hey, David, can I do an arrangement? Because I knew he knew the vernacular. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. And uh, you can actually go on YouTube and hear it. You can hear what I did that day. I thought that I only did one song, but now David's estate has let me know because they sent me a a thumb drive of all the work that I did at uh, Mountain Studios. And I actually did almost the entire album. I almost demoed the entire entire album. Uh, I sat up all night writing arrangements. And um, and I got these jazz guys to come in and play it with us. I just said, look, um, send me guys who can read music. <laughs> they sent in these three dudes I never met before. And we played it down. And if you listen... If you go and check out the demo of Let's Dance online, you'll hear somebody scream. And you David is singing while we're playing. Mm-hmm. That person who screams is me. It's not David. It's me because I thought it was a good arrangement. But when I heard the guys play it, I was like, "Woo!" <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, I had it. And, and then he let me just do all the arrangements. So when he 
gave me China Girl. And I was like, going, whoa, this is a B-side. This, this is not a hit. And I wrote that, dee, 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 like the most racist shit ever. Because <laughs> David is so not racist. It, it like when I did that, I was like, going, oh, man, I didn't want to ask him what the song was about because he had the the serenity prayer from AA tattooed on his leg in kanji. He had it in Japanese. I was like, Oh Mm -hmm. man, like what, you know? So I, to me, China girl was about doing drugs, right? It was because China white was Carol. So, you know, it was boy and girl. So I was like, I didn't want to broach that subject. So, you know, like you said, Matt, I I played a riff and I thought I was going to get fired. Instead, he said, I fucking love that. And then I said, really? And I had written out charts for the band, and they all went, pop, pop. So anyway. Yeah, you're right. James, James, you look like you're dying to ask a question. This is amazing, because I was going to ask about China Girl. The irony is, so he wrote it with Iggy, and Iggy put it out first. And A, to get a hit out of that, and I love Iggy's version, but this song is like still on radio, is insane. And if that riff would have been the other way, and I love Iggy. If Iggy Pop would have put out China Girl with that riff, you never would have heard the song again or Iggy Pop. But you doing it for David Bowie. David Bowie got the wink. It's like, eh, okay, all right, we got you, Dave. You've done a lot. You're all right. We know where you stand, baby. If Iggy would have had that riff, holy, he'd be washing dishes in Miami right now. But I love also, him. He's one of my heroes. Is it true that on the um on the Let's Dance riff that like uh? echoey reverby thing was an accident that wasn't supposed to be there right complete accident yeah dave dave and i we were outside um and uh and my engineer at the time bob clearmount who did like almost all my records um all he was doing was getting the different delay times that he would put you know like okay i'm gonna put this delay on the drums i'm gonna put this delay on the vocal i'm gonna put this delay on whatever and when we walked in the room um, it wound up being a multi-tap delay kind of thing. So he put the guitar in it, and he was just listening to make sure that I was gonna that I was staying in the groove. Mm-hmm. And and we walked in and we heard that. And we were like, leave it like that. And it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So it was an accident, but it was one of those beautiful accidents that happened in the recording studio, um, especially with live bands. You know, yeah. I did that whole album in just 17 days start to finish and everything is basically one take there's that's why wow. you've never heard oh here's the outtakes of let's dance here's the outtakes of china girl here's the out there is no outtake it's one fucking take like madonna used to say time is money and the money is mine tape <laughs> <costs money. laughs> i love it because i saw you talk about that that which is law it's a lost art these days with you know pro tools and endless time in your house that you were paying for time. So you had to come up with ideas right away, get them in, get them out. Because if you didn't, it meant you were going to be being way the fuck over budget of money. You probably didn't have at the time. Right. You, most people, man, they have no idea. David Bowie was dropped from his label. He had no label. He paid for that record himself. So I was very cognizant of the fact that I, I had to make a record and, you know, and sometimes people get offended when I explain it like this, but I'm just being really honest. You know, white artists would have really big budgets. Black artists would have low rec, low budgets. Mm-hmm. So basically, 
I I did it like a black record. We went in there, we made it in 17 days, almost no money. Um, it, it was funny when David would buy us lunch. <laughs> it was like, um, are you, are, you, are you sure you need two hamburgers? Um, <laughs> you know, one, one of the coolest things was when Stevie Ray Vaughan came up to work on the record, whom I had never even heard of before. And it's funny how we wound up being friends, like great friends for his whole life after that. Um, I never heard of this dude. He comes in and he endears himself to all the musicians because he gets barbecue sent up from Austin, Texas. <laughs> and it was way before Federal Express and stuff. It's like, I'm like, how did he think of that? And we were so thankful because we actually wound up having a really good lunch one day. Because <laughs> That's hilarious. That's wild. <laughs> All right, before we go any further, just one simple phrase. You've heard me say it a million times. $60 kilos. The unattainable number that no one in the world of Kratom was able to accomplish until Yo Kratom came along. For years, entrepreneurs, scientists, academics, they all tried to solve the $60 kilo problem, but Yo Kratom came along and figured that shit out. $60 kilos, high-quality curated Kratom direct to you at wholesale prices like only they can do at YoKratom.com. Sponsor of the show and the Gas Seattle Network for over three years, and it just feels cool buying Kratom in kilos. $60 kilos at YoKratom.com. Let's get back into it. Right, so I want to go back to the beginning for a moment. So I, we talked about this a little bit off the air. Your father was a percussionist. He had only met him a few times. Your mother uh, had dated a few men in and out. You said you like seven dads. You felt like you had one yeah. of them. You brought, I, I read this somewhere that like as a child, Richard Pryor, Thelonious Monk, and Lenny Bruce are coming to visit you as a that. kid to your home in Greenwich Village, right? So yeah. that's the environment you're growing up with, right? <laughs> and then somehow... Your first job is playing with a touring rendition of Sesame Street. Am I right on that? Is that yeah, am I fucking that up a little bit? It's not a rendition. It was Sesame Street. On oh Sesame my god! Live. It was the it was the second year that the show existed, okay. and they went on tour all around the world because Sesame Street just exploded. It was big, and it's sort of like it was the beginning. It, it, it like foreshadowed like what we have now. You know, if you have a successful show like that, um, they'll take it on the road and um, and and they perform live, and and that's what we did. Um, and I I don't even remember if the show was called Sesame Street Live or Sesame Live or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, we the, so we had the characters and. The, the two stars of the show, uh, Loretta Long and Bob McGrath. Bob just passed away. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah. and, and you know, the, thing, the thing is, like, we were all, like, total hippies. And I remember one of the coolest things ever. We were gigging up in Canada. And we saw this dude hitchhiking, um, to, you know, coming back to America, coming to Buffalo or something. And we saw him and we stopped the bus. And everybody got into character, and we. <laughs> oh my God! It must have freaked him the fuck out. Jesus yeah, we Christ. said, "What if this dude is tripping? Like, what, how cool would this be if he gets on the bus and is like, oh man, he can't tell.' Like, <laughs> and we picked the guy up, and we had. I mean, that's how cool that job was. I mean, it was, it 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 um it it was about humanity, about love. It was about education it was about entertainment so it was 
didactic as well as being entertaining. So it was like a perfect kind of job for me. Mm -hmm. you know, I was, How old were you at that time? Uh, I was probably 19. Um, wow. Maybe, yeah, I was, I was probably 19 because this was going to be my first year of college. Oh, I, no shit. Then I was 18 because, see, I was born in September. So mm -hmm. typically the school year starts in September. Right. But I wind up being the youngest dude in the class because my birthday is September 19th. So the school year, had, you know, had already started usually. And most of those kids turn, you know, I'm going back to the first grade now. So most of those kids had turned six, you know, in January, February. Right everything up until September since since I'm in the last you know quarter the, yeah. the beginning of the last quarter yeah. um I'm like one of the youngest kids in school as, as someone born December 31st I feel your pain oh okay <laughs> there you go right so were you the oldest dude in the school the youngest always the youngest always oh the youngest young. right yeah. super young yeah, yeah. so yeah. so um so I I was probably 18 but you know that's when i got the gig so i went to manhattan school of music and up on the the bulletin board they had the you know little index cards and uh in those days because you dudes aren't old enough but but it when we were looking for bands when we we're putting bands together it would be like uh hey man you know like no ego trippers allowed i wanted to <laughs> Band that's a cross between Fairport Convention, like Hendrix, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and like, you know, man, maybe like uh, the Iron Butterfly, you know? So, like, that was, you know. Sounds like, like a good band. Yeah, I'm it would be a good band. I got my bass right here. One of the auditions now, I'm going. But so from Sesame Street, you somehow transitioned to working as a part of the house band of the Apollo Theater, right? Yeah, right. Because the star, the female star, Loretta Long, her her husband was a manager of the Apollo Theater. And what happened was the guitar player who wound up being in the Young Americans, Carlos Alomar, um, was uh, he left to go to to join Bowie. And so they were missing a, a you know, guitarist. Um, the house band had two guitar players because in those days, most R&B, most pop records had, you know, it's funny, you know, the, the Beatles are the ones who sort of coined the phrase of self-contained band because a lot of artists in those days, they didn't play on their own records. I mean, right. it was, you know, studio, you know, time is money, you know. The wrecking crew in that. Yeah. yeah, with people who could make those records like that. Um, and so uh, she said to the, to her husband, she said, look, I got a kid with us that is one of the best music readers on guitar that you'll ever meet. And um, I, I went in to audition and they played the uh, a hysterical joke on me uh, because I had come with such great credentials. They said, oh, young blood, hey, man. You don't even have to audition, man. You got this gig. You can just sight read it. Just don't worry about it. And the first artist that I worked with was a guy named Screaming Jay Hawkins. Oh, I knew his name, but I didn't know his routine. I didn't know his shtick. So, <laughs> so they set me up. And, I, and my guitar's right there. You know, the guitar players, we're right in the front of the band, uh, at least the way the, the Apollo had it set up. And, um, and so I'm looking at the conductor, just waiting for the show to start. 
and it's a song. It's I put a spell on you, and it's in, it, you know, it's it's a world. Dun, 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 bum, bum, dun, dun, dun. So I'm waiting for the conductor to put down his hand. He puts down the hand, starts the intro. I had no idea that they had wheeled a coffin in from from stage <laughs> left, and um, and Screaming Jay jumps out of the coffin with this rattle and and scares the shit out of me and starts chasing me around the stage and everybody in the Apollo audience is, I mean, they wow. are crying and the whole band was in on it, right? In those days, I used to be a kung, yeah, I was kung fu pretty pretty good. Um, but meanwhile, I'm running across the stage like, Mr. Mr. Black Belt Kung Fu. <laughs> I was crying. And then I finally realized, because I try I go to stage right and it's blocked. I go back to stage left and it's blocked. I go, holy shit, they're all in on this joke. They hotboxed you. At my expense. And and then it was one of the greatest things that ever happened because they it endeared me to the band and they all taught me about R and B. Cause I started out, I was classical. And then I was just a total hippie. I was like, you know, I only I wanted to be Jimmy, you know, and uh, and that's how, sort of how I played. You know, it's funny you guys mentioned Iggy Pop. You can probably find articles or at least um, advertisements from old hippie magazines and newspapers. We were the opening band, the opening act for the Stooges. Oh wow! You yeah. opened for the Stooges. Chic was or. And we kicked their ass, by the way. <laughs> Wait a minute. Chic opened for the Stooges. Oh, no, we weren't chic, bro. I was only 17 years old. Oh, you're old. just a 17 year old. Okay. Okay. Wow, dude. That's yeah. wild. No, we were called New World Rising. And oh um, wow. So so yeah. somewhere between Big Apple Band and Chic was New World Rising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, when I wrote my memoir, I went and I tracked down Alice Cooper and I went all the way up to where he was working and I said, Yo, Alice, read this and you tell me if I got anything wrong. Cause everybody talks about the Velvet Underground playing at Max's Kansas City. Well, when the Velvet Underground left that very next day, my band New World Rising came in and played. Everybody always thinks that it was Alice Cooper, but it was us. And we were friends with Mickey Ruskin, who owned more clubs than Max's Kansas City. Like, you got to be a Greenwich Village, New York person to know these kinds of things. So he owned a club that was one block from my apartment uh, called the Ninth Circle. And it was like an early kind of gay, uh, jazzy club. And, um, you know, so we were kids. Um and I, yeah, I, I played with Jimmy. I played, uh, you know, r- right after Velvet Underground, before um, uh, we opened, like I said, for the Stooges, we opened for That's a band wild. called Elephant's Memory that became the Plastic Ono Band. Um, you know, wow. so we were deep into the hippie scene. That's just fucking wild. So, um, and by the way, so I know this next story, and I apologize because I personally have heard it many times. But in when I once we knew you were coming on the show, I brought it up to a few people at the office. No one knew this story, but it, to me, it's one of the iconic stories that is associated with Nile Rodgers, which Sheik, you know, becomes this huge band, and obviously, um, that still holds the record for the most the the number one selling uh, single in Atlantic Records history. Briefly, I believe, lost to Flo Rida, and then uh, yeah. came back to number one, right yeah. for a hot minute, but yeah. um. And Cheek, as I'm not mistaken, your your inspiration was Roxy Music uh, to create Cheek, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. But so 
the story, and I'm just going to cliff note it, and you, again, please tell me if I'm wrong, you were supposed to work with, I think it was Grace Jones, and you're going to Studio 54 to meet with her, and the VIP area, the the the, the bouncer just goes, when you say I'm supposed to meet, he goes, he goes, fuck off, and closes the door, and fuck off turns into freak out, and that's how the song came about. Am I, it was like a fuck you to that guy in a way. It, it was 100 percent but we weren't saying fuck you to that guy actually we were saying fuck you to because no one would i i didn't even know that guy's name or the bouncer or anything like that so the, you the story is right the only thing is that he didn't say fuck off he said oh fuck off he said oh fuck off because what happened was grace told us to go to the back door and tell them that we were personal friends of miss grace jones um i don't know if you've ever heard grace jones's speaking voice but it sounds like a combination of marlena dietrich bella lugosi and bob Marley. <laughs> right so we thought that that was one of those rock and roll things where you know you pull out the whatever the green m&ms or some shit and she says so you go to the back door and you tell them that your personal friends are Miss Grace Jones. So we thought that we were supposed to mime that. We had no idea that that's just how she speaks. And at least that's, I mean, we had never spoken <laughs> that one phone call. So we go, we knock on the back door and we go, hello, we are personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. And we're trying to do the best. So great. And the guy goes, oh, fuck off. And we're like, no, 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 that's the truth. <laughs> And um, so we had to go to my apartment, um, which was only one block away from the back door of Studio 54. Mm -hmm. um, I lived on 52nd Street. The back door of Studio 54 was on 53rd Street. And on our way to my apartment, we had to pass a liquor store and we bought two bottles of what we used to call rock and roll mouthwash, which was Dom Perignon champagne. And we drank it real fast, not realizing how lightheaded you get if you drink champagne, real, especially the whole bottle, right? We, mm -hmm. we found it and we just started singing, Oh, fuck off, dunk, fuck Studio 54. Fuck off, dunk, fuck off. And then we got into it and we wrote a whole song and the lyrics on the verse um, were written in such a way where the most appropriate response would be to fuck off. So it was a call and response kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like if a cab driver cuts you off, fuck off. Do -do 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 -do. You know, if your mom asked you to do homework, fuck off, you know, like, and, <laughs> and finally we, we developed it and it was really jamming. And my partner said, uh, my man, you know, this shit is happening. This is a couple of years before hip hop, right? Now, how are we mm -hmm. going to fuck off on the radio? Um, so, um, Bernard didn't know me as a hippie because we met playing R&B music, you know, on a pickup gig. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to rewrite it because now he's telling me that he loves it. So we're working on it. So we go, you know, we use the euphemism for fuck. We said, ah, freak off. I was like going, bro, this 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 ain't lifting my skirt, man. I'm 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 just not <laughs> this ain't this not doing it. And then and then I, I I don't know why I did this, but because um because when I was younger, I used to really take a lot of hallucinogens, you know, I mean a lot of acid, a lot of shrooms. I mean, that was my thing. I grew up on 
mm-hmm. LSD and MDMA. Like that was my world. Um, so I just went into total hippie mode on Bernard and Bernard was like the ultimate soul brother. And I just said to him, I said, oh man, you know, like, so like, you know, when what if, like when you do, you know, you have a bad trip, man, and you like freak out. Um, why don't we call it like freak out, man? And Bernard looked at me and went, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm, oh, I'm sorry, bro. I said, you know, like when you see a fine girl and you're like on the dance floor and you just start freaking out. And then boom, Bernard went. And my kids are doing that new dance called The Freak. Light bulb. Oh, that's so that, funny. Yeah, that new dance called The Freak. Oh, shit. So we ran out and we wrote, we ran out, we bought two records that were about dances. We bought Chubby Checker, The Twist, and we bought Joey D and the Starlighters, The Peppermint Twist. And we listened to them heavy and we realized that the two things that those big records had in common, and those massive hits, were they were iconic records about these dance, but they didn't tell you how to do the dance. So that's what we did. We wrote our freak out about a dance and we never told you how to do the dance. That's amazing. And also, am I right with this? Because sometimes, you know, you hear urban legends that it was Luther Vandross who suggested adding a line and then somehow it became La Freak Chez Chic. Is that right? Yeah, bro. You got your facts. Really? You you did your homework. Yeah, I tried. Exactly I tried. So that's we crazy. Were- we were just going, oh, fuck off, fuck Studio 54. So when we change it to, ah, oh, freak out. See, Bernard liked the lick that I was playing. So he thought that the lick would carry it. Just going, ah, oh, freak out. Freak out. So he thought that that was cool enough. And then Luther said, but well, why don't you say something else? Um, why don't you go say chic? And it was actually Bernard who went Le Freak. So Bernard went, oh, man. You know, because we were pretending to be from France. That's how we started. I mean, on our first album, we have a song called Esca Say Chic. And we don't speak French. And the reason... <laughs> Reason why like Le Freak became so big was because in French speaking African countries, they thought that we were talking about Africa. They thought that we were going Africa. Check it out. Oh, that's wild. Check it out. La Freak c'est chic. And like I met Nelson Mandela and his his you know his handler said, he wrote Africa. He wrote Africa. <laughs> that's crazy. That's when he thinks wild. that and he tells you that. Do you come clean to Nelson Mandela and be like, no, <laughs> sir, we weren't doing that. Uh, no, no. Yeah, you have to double down, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I became like, <laughs> I became Donald Trump. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, the, I wrote Africa. And I'm the best <laughs> Africa writer in the world. I can, yeah, yeah. And I'll get somebody else to pay for it. So no, let I, me ask you the, the obvious question here. So you obviously just listening to stories, the amount of people you've worked with, the amount of influence you've had, here I have so I could ask four thousand questions. Let's start with one. Is there anyone that you have been dying to work with that you've never been able to work with? Only one person, and one hundred percent true story. Um, so, uh, like, I really like clothing, and you know, just because of my hippie thing. 
Uh, I'd always been into clothing and using that as an expression of, you know, I come from the era of like, you know, individuality and you want to be original and you want to be cool. Um, so Miles Davis and I, we did a, a photo uh, session for the designer Issei Miyake. And, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so we, we met, even though, you know, Miles had been around my crib when I was a child, but I was a kid, you know, so uh, he wouldn't know me. And I certainly never said, Oh, Hey, Miles, guess what? You know, you you guys, you and Monk hung with my mom. And, you know, that that's right. so corny. It's like, like imagine wow. a guy starting an interview with remember 30 years ago when we met. It's like that <laughs> kind of corny. <laughs> okay, you said it, bro. I <laughs> it's a great story, man. I love it because I, I'm sure you were your facts are so good, you were you got it right. But anyway, so so Miles said to me. He says, hey, now, I want you to write me a motherfucking freak out. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, man, I screwed up. No, he wanted me to write him good times. He oh, said, okay. he said, now, I want you to write me a motherfucking good times. And I said, oh, my God. I started out playing, you know, fusion. Like I said, you know, no no ego trip is allowed, man. You know, we're going <laughs> to. So I'm, I started out, like, idolizing Miles, I mean, when when he dropped the album Bitches Brew, that changed all of our lives. I mean, we just sat around. I, I'll never forget it. I went to my man's a good friend of mine's loft and we got like hash and we just got a hash pipe and passed it around a circle. And we just listened to Bitches Brew until we all like, like passed out. So now I'm with like this guy who I idolize and he's asking me to write him good times. And I just keep writing all these fusion songs. And he's going, motherfucker, I can do that. <laughs> I want you to write me a motherfucking good times. And I'm like going, I just couldn't fathom Miles wanting a, like a R&B pop song. But then, you know, we sort of drifted apart a little bit because our apartments were like back to back for a minute. So I could look right into his window and he could look into mine. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we were hanging out. But when I moved to the apartment that I still own now, um, uh, it we just sort of lost touch. But then I listened to all the records that he put out and he was covering Michael Jackson, human nature and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I realized that he wanted what we all want is to just talk to the masses. That's that's what our art is about. It's not about just like I'm gonna make records for my friends or I'm gonna make records because I'm so I'm so fucking great. You know, just I I just want these people to listen to it. No, we we want we want the world to hear it. We we write for everyone. We don't. Uh, at least I don't believe in. And I and I could tell by what Miles was putting out. He wanted to communicate with this larger audience, because think about it, people whom he had discovered and brought to the world, like Herbie Hancock was having huge singles. I mean, having mm -hmm. big, big, big pop singles. I mean, you know, Miles wanted that too, because obviously when he started out, his form of jazz, cool jazz, was pop. Right. And that had eluded him now for a very long time. So 
I didn't believe that he was actually telling me the truth because I had known about Miles's reputation. And I thought that if I brought in a song that was like a funk kind of dance track and we were like, going, yeah, good time or whatever right. our variation would be, he would say, you think I'm going to play that bullshit? You <laughs> I was like, I, I, I love being Miles's friend. I loved right. it. I thought it was cool. Um, but then realizing that he really wanted that from me and that he respected me as an artist and a composer and I let him down. I let myself down. I didn't wow. just let Miles down. I let me down. It would have been one of the greatest moments of my life to have made a pop single with Miles. Wow. Yeah. Just like making a pop single with David and making the biggest record of his life and making the biggest wow. record of Diana Ross's life and Duran Duran's life and I mean, in excess. And the list just goes on and on. It is crazy. What about this? Was there ever a song that you worked with on an artist that you're like, oh, this is going to be fucking huge and it just wasn't? Like something that you were so sure we got the secret sauce on this one and it just didn't happen. Yeah, every one of my records, that's a flop, which is most of my records. Oh, oh. Yeah. Fair, fair we, enough. The thing is that we we know the hits, but you don't realize that um, for every hit, I probably have had maybe 20 failures. I don't, I don't even know. Before I did Let's Dance, I had six flops in a row. And... Wow. Um, and I was accustomed to only having, you know, number one and top five records. I, my first single was a smash. Uh, we were signed to a singles deal to, you know, Atlantic. Mm -hmm. so it had to be a smash or we would have never gotten an album. Right. Um, so it was a smash. Then when we put out our next single, that was a smash. We broke Sister Sledge with a platinum single. He's right. the greatest dancer is what we broke Sister Sledge with. Yeah. Then We Are Family went on to dwarf it. But imagine we sold two point something million singles of Sister Sledge right out of the gate. And most people had never even heard of Sister Sledge. That's wild. So that's wild. Yeah. That, that's what I was accustomed to. I was like, yeah, all my shit's going to be hit. <laughs> Whoops. Yes, yes James. Go suck happened and nothing was a hit ever again <laughs> until I met Bowie. Does that ever shake your confidence then? Like, so we look at you and we're like, we see this body of work now. And we're like, this dude's got to walk into the studio dick first, just knowing what he had. I mean, you're a legend. But was there ever a time where someone hires you and you're thinking to yourself, can I deliver or can I not? Or do you, are you always confident in yourself, but not the uh, audience? I'm, I'm always confident because... Um, I really, really work hard. I really try hard. I never make a record for me, ever, unless it's my record. I always make the record for the artist. So the reason why it was great that we got to tell the Bowie story first, because you can just, you know, that's what I do with every artist. Um, it's just that most of the time it doesn't work. And I was expecting it not to work with Bowie, and you know, because most records don't work. But the sincerity in my heart is I want to make this guy go from here to there. That's what I want to do. When I met the B-52s, I, I, I was maybe one of the biggest B-52s fans in the world. They didn't even think I knew about them. And when they we had our first meeting, I started singing a song. Um, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, Legal Tender. They were like going, how the hell do you know legal tender? 
it was like a total flop, but I'm going, we're in the basement, bum, bum, learning to print. They're like, how do you know that? I'm like, because I love you guys. I, you know, I'm I'm so down. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I try and make the next B-52s record, not the last, or even keep them on this level. I want to go there. It's always on that. I believe we're all on an artistic arc, and I want to be on that part of your arc, not that part. But most of the time, I'm on that part. <laughs> I'm trying to be on that part. So let me ask you, because it seems, I mean, you, I was curious. I don't, didn't find it in my uh, research, but did, did you ever work with Prince or did that never come Yeah, out? yeah, yeah. Uh, so I see <laughs> you guys are pretty cool. So you'll understand what I mean. Um, I'm a musician. So playing live with people is work. That's what I love doing. So I have played live with Prince quite a few times, but I never recorded with him. I didn't need to. I, I mean, Prince was amazing. He was a genius. And you can tell that he was a, a Chic fan on the highest level because when we put out our album Chicism, the most promotion we ever got was Prince holding up our album, our CD. Remember the long CD boxes? Yeah. Prince holding up our CD going, you sexy motherfucker. Sexy motherfucker, shaking that ass, shaking that ass, shaking that ass, and he's got the chic record, and that's, that's the so cool. Ever got? Wow, and, that's and amazing. We, yeah, so you can once again, you can go online and see Chic playing with Prince, um, and it was one of the few videos that he never took down, um, and because you know Prince took everything down. If you even yeah. put up a picture, he would take it down. But if you go online, you'll see not only did he not take it down, he we we posted a picture of us because we started jumping. We were playing Let's Dance, and he comes out and he's doing Stevie's parts, and he's oh, killing. So cool, he's killing it. And so now we're telling the audience, jump, jump, jump. And then we, I look over the stage left, and Prince is doing this, and he's got his guitar ready to go. And um, so I posted because I couldn't help it, and then he reposted, and he goes no words and i went oh, oh that's oh so fucking God. cool god it damn it like, that's cool delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs a gripping murder mystery starring academy award winner russell crowe now available on digital crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall uncovering secrets from his past he learns a chilling truth it's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Uh, and it's also what's wild is to this day, I don't think enough people realize how songs that you were in, worked on are the became hits in other forms, like with uh, Biggie doing More Money, More Problems, that's sampling Diana Ross, or basically the foundation of hip hop, which for everyone would look at the Sugar Hill Gang, even though there's some others before then, that was a beat from you. It is like, you could argue that hip hop was created because of that. I mean, it just, it's wild how influential you are. And then we talk about Sheik. Sheik reformed uh, in the 90s at the China Club. Uh, Ber Bernard Edwards passed away, unfortunately, right after the last show yeah. on that tour. Um, and now you are out, going to be out this year with Duran Duran, a band that you worked with for many songs from the reflex and so many others, but now Sheik is going to be playing out on tour with Duran Duran this summer, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did it last year, and it was uh, maybe one of our most successful tours. Um, and the way that I can judge it is when I look out in the audience and I saw <clears throat> more chic T-shirts than Duran T-shirts. <laughs> They were the headliner. I went, okay, this is the right, this is the right pairing. And, um, and, you know, look, I love Duran. I basically, every time we play, um, you know, any, any, like, you, you know, when you come to a chic show, <clears throat> I play a lot of songs that I've done for other artists because, you know, those are my arrangements there. Right. So, <clears throat> I, I come from a world where being an arranger to me was a very prestigious position like that, that when I said to Bowie, can I do an arrangement? That shit had weight, man. It was like that. I felt like Burt Bacharach. I felt like Quincy Jones, you, like, you know, Oliver Nelson. I felt like I'm, I'm an arranger, man. I can take your song. That's like that. And I can make it complete. So the fact that the, the songs that I produce uh, as I said to you guys at the beginning, I play on every record that I produce. It's it, so wild. My my arrangements and my licks. And, you know, so when we play the show, um, when you see a chic show, you'll hear, um, depending upon how much time we have on stage, you'll hear everything from, you know, B-52s, Duran Duran, Nexus, Bowie, Madonna. And, and this year we're adding even more shows because I've had, quite a few hits in the last few years right you know, beyonce um i kill the lights um uh you know like you said i've done quite a few songs with avici and adam lambert and right. you know so do you, do you ever throw in love me sexy from the semi-pro movie just to get that no, out there no i don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but one night one night in amsterdam we played soul glow and oh the, really? Oh, oh my god. god. That's fucking awesome. Bananas. They, oh. It was the original guy who sang it. He lives Stop. in Amsterdam and he came to our gig and I said, "Chris, you got to sing it." <laughs> the girls in my band cuz Sheik has always had girls in our band. <laughs> man, they were like, "Okay, we want to go home with him. We love him." <laughs> he, he, and he still sounds the same. So he just let your soul Oh that's my God! It's the greatest Great. thing ever. Oh my God, that's awesome. Um, I don't know how much more time we have with these. We got to do a couple of quick things to to wrap this up. But my my last main question before we do the last few things: Are there any artists you're currently working with that you're super excited is like on the on the horizon for coming out? On the horizon, like something <laughs> you're working with right now. You know, like that. Oh, yeah, this is I'm, I'm working with Coldplay now, which is awesome because. I mean, one, I've loved Chris for a long time, but um it 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 was like it it was like making real records again, man. I'd like, you know, I get into the studio and Chris says to me, Hey now, nah, man, you want to join the circle? And the, the hippie in my ass, I can't help him like, wow, I wanna join the circle. And it's all of those guys in Coldplay and me there. We're just in the room playing together. And then Max Martin said to me the other day. He said, Nile, I listened to all the stuff because Max is the guy in charge of the record. And he was like, man, the shit you played is like incredible. <laughs> I'm like going. And then I did a solo, like, a, you know, a shreddy guitar solo. And that, that, 
the, the uh, Coldplay doesn't have guitar solos on their records. And it was like, and and it's like, man, you know, I don't know if they'll keep it because I really go <laughs> a little bit nuts. But um, um, like R&B, Eddie Van Halen kind of stuff. Uh, wow, that's good. Cool. <laughs> but I'm in. But just, the, but the fact that that it was that kind of love and and you know and 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 I'm also working with Saint Vincent now and she's amazing. Oh, wow, she's great. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I have I have a lot. You, I mean, honestly, it would sound like bragging, but in fact, I am just humble and so blown away with the quality of artists that I have coming out in the next year. And the record I'm doing. All right, so um, we're going to do the first now, and then we're going to. Any other question? We'll give them in. The first time ever I saw the name of the show is the SDR show, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. We have asked every guest this since the dawn of time. Feel free to not answer if you don't want to. Just have to say that out there. But we asked this question to every single guest since the dawn of time. Their first experience with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We start with rock and roll, and we ask about the first concert you went to on your own volition. I know that, uh, by the way, just to brag about my research, the first song you ever learned on guitar was A Day in the Life by the Beatles, and you have your own hit maker guitar on Fender. But the first concert you ever went to on your own volition... Yeah. Um, so the first time I ever remember walking into uh, a concert, um, and I'm sure I had something before this, but the one that I remember was the opening of the Fillmore East. It was Big Brother and the Holding Company, wow. Albert King, and I think Blue Cheer or the Iron Butterfly. I'm not wow. Sure. That's, That's a dope awesome. lineup. And also, by the way, uh, Fillmore East, there's a bank there now, and they still have pictures in the bank that honor the Fillmore East, at least as of a few years ago. So that's nice to see. And now, excuse me, we asked about the first drug you ever did after weed, unless weed wasn't your first drug. I know there's a crazy story with you uh, where your heart stopped eight times. And I think you've been sober since the mid-90s, if not earlier. But the, the first drug you ever did after weed, unless weed wasn't your first drug. Uh, yeah, weed wasn't my first drug. My first drug, I was sniffing glue. So I, I sniffed glue. Uh, I passed out the very first time I did it. Um, I didn't know that you could die or pass out. And it's funny because when I was doing it, and I'm the guy is teaching me how to do it, and I'm like, <laughs> and then the guy, the dude who's teaching me, he says, uh, Oh, yeah. One thing you got to remember, when you can't feel the bag on your face, that's when you got to stop. And the last thought I had before I passed out was, should I have been able to feel the bag on my face for about five minutes? (laughs) (laughs) And I went, and and glue glue was all over my face, and he was trying to rub it off to keep me from dying. And Oh, my God. How old were you at that point? 11. Oh, Jesus Christ. Wow. And Wow. and, And then I said, hey, let's do that again. And so I sniffed glue and uh, and and drank wine. And because my parents were heroin addicts, um, they allowed me to smoke pot. But that was mm-hmm. like, eh, that was nothing. Yeah, who cares about that? But I also like the idea that a friend of yours showed you a performance of yours when you were high and you're like, OK, I'm going to be sober now. Like, that's that's all I needed to see. I'm good. 
<laughs> you you really have your research down, man. That was exactly what happened. With Madonna's 38th birthday. And I was like, you know, partying in Miami Beach, which was the hottest place in the world at that time. And um, and I was working with this guy who's just an absolute musical genius. I was honored to be working with him. And he was doing a gig at a local club. And he said, hey, nah, you want to come down and jam? Yeah, that's all you got to say to me. Of course, I want to come and jam. So I go down to the club and and he's a Latin artist, he's a Cuban artist. And, and I kept thinking to myself, well, I've I've actually had a career with Cuban artists, you know, one of the most famous of all time. Celia Cruz used to call me her son because I always loved the jam. I was with the Bazan brothers. So I'm like going, damn, what do I do to be on this dude's level? So I was like, going, he's such a genius. I'll just go into show business mode. So I put the guitar behind my head and started doing Hendrix stuff. And, yeah. and I don't do that. You'll never, ever see me do that because Chic is not about gimmicks. I do. I'm not into that shit. But with this dude, I was like going, I was high, really high. <laughs> put the guitar behind my head and started doing that. And the crowd started going bananas. And I, and I, I perform like a DJ. Like I read the crowd and, you know, we have so many songs that we could change the set anytime we want. Mm -hmm. So I read the crowd and say, you know, let's like last year we were opening um, for like Metallica. And it was like, you know, it was like a hardcore Metallica crowd. And I could see them texting on Twitter. Get those fucking niggas off the stage. <laughs> and so we went out and said, OK, guys. We are gonna fucking smoke. <laughs> and Metallica are my boys. Like they're my friends. We're like, well, we're like, we are going out and we're gonna smoke this shit. And we, you know, so we are not about gimmick. We're about right. playing and musicianship, singing, killing. That's all we do. We don't have girls half naked shaking their asses. Right. We don't do that. Um, and I don't do gimmicks. I, right. you know, maybe some shtick, some fun stuff, just but I'm actually just telling the real stories. So they wind up being funny because rock and roll is funny. I mean, what? Come on. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but that's about it. Um, yeah, but, but then that leads to the last one: the first time you had sex. Um, uh, all around the same time when I was around eleven, but actually I was probably twelve. Um, I was just about to go to junior high school, and my my parents were heroin addicts and we were living in this very poor part of la um and the, the place that we lived was filled with just pimps and um and drug dealers and whatever and prostitutes and the whole bit and and the daughter of this one prostitute i had just was she was just the most beautiful angelic thing i'd ever i mean she was just so beautiful her name was deborah and I just was just head over heels in love with Deborah. And I didn't even really know how to have sex. I had a concept of it. Don't worry, I still don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I had lots of erections and <laughs> masturbated a lot and all that kind of thing. But um, and when I, I remember being on top of Deborah and feeling like I was like floating, like I was in heaven or something. Um, so, yeah, it was... I. I I always judged things by what grade of school I was in. Uh -huh. so I hadn't quite started um, 
junior high school, so I had to be 12 going on 13. Wow. Okay, that's that's a great answer. Wow. Uh, and then also, uh, I saw you do an interview with Ian Schrager. Um, you know, I was a uh, in-house promoter for the Palladium, and I actually think you might have been there. It was Steve Rebell's birthday party in the Hamptons, and I had to, I was like a um, a runner. They had they had it. They I thought they invited us to the party. And we, we were we were in-house promoters for the Palladium, and we got to like put this on, and we were like moving cars and serving drinks. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> But uh, I was close to them at one point in my life. All right, so uh, you go to at uh, Nile Rogers on Instagram. Uh, you could, by the way, I heard you say in an interview that you don't feel you understand music today or the, what's going on in the world today with music. But you are killing it on TikTok at Nile Rogers and Chic, so you understand TikTok technology pretty well. I will tell you that. And then the uh, We Are Family Foundation. You could go to We Are Family uh, FDTN on Instagram as well. You're going on tour. Dot, with dot org. Remember, it's a hmm? charity. So it's we are family foundation.org. .org. Yes, I was giving the Instagram, but yes, we are family foundation.org. Oh, uh, and then obviously you're going out on tour with Duran Duran, doing a string of dates. Is there anything else you want to plug before we go around the room? Um, nah, nah, that's that's pretty cool. We, yeah, we you know we do Duran Duran, but we we do our own headline shows. Uh, we're actually doing a headline show here in Miami Beach uh, in about. 10 days oh wow um, okay that's great and um you know and my roller skating rink uh disco aces coming to miami and uh you know i doing some movie stuff and you know i i just i'm just me i'm a worker bee i don't know i got a bunch of stuff going on and and you probably can find out about it so i i don't really honestly i just i never really like promote myself cool. like uh, with all the awards that I've won and Grammys and stuff, and I'm being 100% honest with you guys, I never ask my friends to vote for me. I don't say, oh, I'm in the regular Hall of Fame. We, we've been you know, nominated 11 times. We never got in. Finally, they put me in just sort of, I guess, as some like, like Jesus Christ, how could these guys get nominated 11 times and not get in? So they That's crazy. put Nile Rogers in, but they didn't put it in Sheik. I go, uh, guys with Sheik was nominated 11 fucking times, not Nile Rogers. That's know? weird. That is bizarre. Uh, James, your plugs. Well, I am going to self-promote, sir. I almost felt like not what it was getting thrown to me after you. But uh, uh, The James Mattern, Patter with an M on Instagram and YouTube. Check out uh, the special, The Check Spot, and the album. You can order it on ComedyRecords.com. The vinyl, me performing while everyone pays their bills. The worst part of the comedy show. New album being recorded in November. Sir, if you ever want to record, uh, if you want to produce a comedy album, just come on <laughs> to New York City. We're going to do it part of the New York Comedy Festival. It would be the greatest thing ever. And... Uh, Yo, man, go buy the last few tickets to go see Chrissy D September 22nd in uh, Radio City. I'm opening up for Chris Stefano at Radio City September 22nd. If I die the next day, it would have been all worth it. So come Niall, on out. Our producer's not here today. She has a show called The Thing Is. It's about dating, fighting, and ghosts. We always mm -hmm. ask the guest at the end of the show, and don't indicate until James and I chime in, does Niall Rogers believe in ghosts? This and is I'm going to say 100% yes. James, what do you say? I mean, I almost feel like I should say something foolish. Like if he says no, then I'll walk down First Avenue naked right now because I just can't imagine that it's no. I'm going yes. It's clearly a yes. This is the is easiest yes? yes ever. Yeah, uh, I actually had uh, a, a, an incident in my old apartment. I lived in uh, Tudor City 
um, and uh, you, you know, it's it's a part of New York. It's right across from the United Nations, and the United Nations actually used to be slaughterhouses. It was a big, you know, like so. Anyway, the back of Tudor City, they have really small windows, and sometimes like no windows. I uh, was very fortunate when I was a kid because I used to do television commercials. I played classical guitar and Spanish guitar. And I used to do television commercials for Savarin Coffee for this guy named Alexa Gente, the demanding one. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I lucked up and this guy died and I was able to move from my little teeny tiny studio apartment to the penthouse apartment. And I was in, in my apartment and I was in bed with my girlfriend at the time and she was asleep and I was somehow bound and, and, and gagged. And I don't know if I just had, what is that called? Sleep, whatever. Sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. It could have been that, but I saw an aberration running around the side of my room, of my bedroom. And not, we weren't high. And, and, um, and I, it's a long story, but I got to make it short. And I know we don't have time. But um, so I, when I finally was able to uh, move, I woke my girlfriend up and asked her if she had witnessed what we, I witnessed. She said, no, I actually went downstairs and called the police because we're right across the United Nations. So we always mm-hmm. have police around. And I asked them to go outside on my balcony and tell me what saw and what they feel and walked outside on my balcony um which was oh by the way my balcony used when i first moved in the apartment it was beautiful i had climbing wisteria and roses all around me but everything had died so it was Ooh. like i was in a horror movie in a weird way so when the police went out there and they had guns and shit and blah 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 and they they came back in and i said what do you guys think um, what should I do? And the, honestly, the police told me, move. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. That's, That's uh, crazy. True, man. <laughs> they, told me wild. Move. they were terrified. They came into my apartment. They were afraid. They were like, That's move. Oh, Shannon's going to love that story, by the way. Spectacular. Uh, fo- follow me everywhere. And I am Ralph Sutton. My other podcast on health and wellness is called Good Sugar. I'm going for menu testing in a week. Third Avenue and 69th Street. The restaurant will be open. The Good Sugar Vegan Place will be there. Feel free to come down and check it out. Honestly, Niall, this went so well for us. We could ask you another 4,000 questions, but we don't have unlimited time with you. But thank you so much for coming on. It's a true honor. Hopefully it's not 30 years again before I see you again. And uh, we we add a song every week to the playlist. I feel we spent so much time talking about it. We got to play Let's Dance by David Bowie because it's just how could you not at this point? And uh, honestly, Niall, thank you so much for coming on the SDR show. Thank you, guys. And, man, good luck at your show. I, I I love comedy. I Man, I hope I could make it. That would be cool. If you're oh. ever in New York, man, reach out, man. Come what come mean, see I'm me at the New cellar York. or wherever. Dude, I'm a New Yorker. What do you mean if I'm ever in New York? Well, I know you're in Miami now, but you still got to put, yeah, man, come come to a show. I, yeah. I, I brought up at the Comedy Cellar last night because Gnome, the owner, is a musician. Mm-hmm. And he says he played with a Kim Davis he said that wow. you played with- Kim is my girl. She's my lead singer. Yeah, yeah. So he told me he lit up. 
And he was like, oh, my God, how did how how is this happening? I'm like, I'm on the coolest show in the world. So, yeah, you come to, <laughs> look, you come to the cellar a, next time. The, in the interest we, we of time your and, to your, and to the other shows you're going to be on, we just got to stop it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank man. you, man.
You've been listening to the SDR Show.